You are listening to a podcast from Influence Church. We hope it encourages and empowers you to make a difference in your world for the kingdom of God. For any more information, visit our website, influencechurch.co.uk. Enjoy the message. Ready to dive into God's word this morning? All right, so if you turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 22, verse 39, hopefully it should come up on the screen. Um, And if you were at conference, then you kind of know how I like to read scripture. We're going to read this together. So any word I don't say, can you shout out? Is that okay? All right. It says, Jesus went out as usual to the Mount of Olives and his disciples, his disciples, him. And on reaching the place, he said to them, Pray that you will not fall into temptation. He withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them and knelt down and prayed. (laughs) Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will, not my will, but yours be done. An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. When he rose from his prayer and went back to the disciples, he found them exhausted from sorrow. Why are you sleeping? He asked them. Get up and pray so that you will not fall into into The title of my sermon this morning is simply this, The Unfair One. The Unfair One. Um, If you read scripture long enough, um, you will know and come to this understanding that the gospel is unfair. The gospel is unfair. When you simply open up the the Bible, you could go to the first few chapters in Genesis and you realise that the gospel is unfair. Let me demonstrate for you this morning. See, God decides that he wants to have an earthly family. He wants to to build the earth and to create the earth so that he can be in union with his earthly family. And so what he begins to do is he begins to form and fill. Form and fill. That's what happens in the first book of Genesis, in the first chapter of Genesis. He forms the sky, then he fills the sky. He forms the earth and then he fills the earth. He forms the seas and then he fills the seas. This is the pattern that happens throughout the book of Genesis. And so once he comes to the end of forming and filling, he then sees that actually he wants to create mankind. And so from the dust that he has on the earth, he forms Adam and then he fills Adam with his breath. He's continuing this pattern and the motif of forming and filling. And then he realizes that it's not good for Adam to be alone. And so he puts Adam to sleep and he takes a rib from Adam's side and he forms and fills with a nice dark-skinned Nubian queen that has all of the (laughs) right curves in all of the right places. That's just my version. (laughs) Your version may be different. But God's desire is that he will be in relationship with humanity. But we know that to be in true relationship with someone, it has to come at the end of a choice. And so he puts the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the garden. And this is what he says to Adam and Eve. This is what he says to them in Genesis chapter 2, verse 16. It should come up on the screen. This is what he says to them. He says, and the Lord commanded the man, you are free. 
I find it really interesting that one of the first commandments that God gives mankind is freedom. He commands them that you are free. And here's the truth. That true freedom comes from true obedience. The culture's understanding of, of freedom is do whatever you want. That's the culture's understanding of freedom. I can just do whatever I want. I'm free when I'm able to just do whatever I want to do. But the biblical understanding of freedom is being free to do what you were created to do. See, true freedom comes from true obedience. And he says, you can eat from any tree but this one. And so unfortunately... Enter stage right, Satan. And he says to Adam and Eve that the only reason God doesn't want you to eat from that tree is because you will be like him. You'll be like him. But if you jump back a few verses in Genesis chapter 1, God says, let us make man in our own image. Another version says this, let us make man like us. And here is a trick from the enemy, that he will always try to convince you of what you are not, even though you are. He will always try to convince you of what you are not. They were already like God, but he's trying to convince them to think that you are not like God. He will always try to convince you that you are not loved, but you are. He will always try to convince you that you are not a son or a daughter, but you are. He will always try to convince you that God doesn't have a plan or a purpose for your life, but he does. He will always try to convince you of what you are not, even though you are. And unfortunately, Adam and Eve, they fall for this trick. And they eat the kiwi. I don't know. I don't know what, I don't know what fruit it was, but... You ever eating a kiwi that's slimy? It's just, ugh. It's just not nice. And at this point, you would think that a certain maxim, a certain rule would be deployed. Growing up in my household, like, as you can see, I'm black, so I grew up in a black household. Uh, and, and there was a certain thing that we had in, in our household, which was this. He who can't hear must feel. I'll translate that for you, for those that didn't grow up in a black household. It means this. If you do not hear and heed the instructions that I've told you to not do a specific action, do not come to me and complain when it goes wrong. And so you would assume that this is what God would do to Adam and Eve. I told you, I commanded you, do not eat from this tree. And they still did it. And I find it really interesting that he does not leave them. See, Adam and Eve, they are running from him, but God is running towards them. Adam and Eve are hiding, but God is actually looking for them. Adam and Eve are uncovered and naked. And what God does is he covers them and he puts a plan in motion to bring them back into relationship with him. Why? Because the gospel is unfair, but it's unfair in our favor. The gospel it is unfair, but it's unfair in our favor. I don't know about you, but I'm so grateful that God doesn't treat me as my sins deserve. 
He, he takes my sins from the east and from the west and throws them in the sea of forgetfulness. I'm grateful that I am saved by grace through faith and I am a son not because of my performance, my attendance, my tithing, my serving, my giving, but because I trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Because the gospel is unfair, but it's unfair in our favour. It's unfair, but it's, it's unfair in our favour. See, there is... This is the, the truth that the Garden of Eden proclaimed. But there is another garden, another famous garden in the Bible called the Garden of Gethsemane. And just for a moment, if we are to parallel these two gardens, the Garden of Eden with the Garden of Gethsemane, what we have is, is this. In the Garden of Eden, we have two people who are sinful but don't handle and experience the full consequence of sin. In the Garden of Gethsemane, we have one man who is sinless, but feels the full consequence of sin. Which one is unfair? Can I go a bit deeper this morning? Yeah. See, the writer of Luke, he, uh, he paints a picture for us. And he says that the disciples are sleeping and they are exhausted with sorrow. Now, I have to ask myself a few questions here when I read that, which is, why are they sleeping? Because Jesus called them. Jesus provided for them. Jesus was the one that, when he was going on the way to Jairus' house, was getting pulled left, right, and center. Jesus was the one that fed the 5,000. Jesus was the one that fed the 4,000. Jesus was the one that when they were on the boat, he walked on the water and he saved them. Jesus seemed to be doing all of the hard work. So I'm a bit confused in this scene why they are in the corner sleeping while Jesus is on his knees sweating and his sweat is falling to the ground like blood. They're sleeping He's sweating. I feel like there should be a reverse here. That he should be sleeping and they should be sweating. Remember the one time, the one time Jesus decided to sleep. Remember the one time when he's on the boat. They're panicking. Get up, Jesus. Get up. Get up. The one time Jesus decided to sleep. But Jesus doesn't respond like that. They had every reason to be up sweating. And Jesus had every reason to be in the corner sleeping. But that's not how this scene plays out. Because if the Garden of Eden proclaims that the gospel is unfair, but it's in our favor, the truth that the Garden of Gethsemane proclaims is this, that life is unfair and it's rarely in our favor. That life is unfair. Jesus didn't deserve to be sweating with droplets like blood because he had done no wrong. Life can be unfair and it is rarely in our favor. Can I go a bit deeper this morning? Yeah. I have two children, Josh and Naomi, six and seven and four. At least the first four or five years of their life, they would wake up 6.30 every single morning. They would not wake up with the awareness and the understanding that they need to be quiet because their parents are asleep and they work hard. No, this is how they would wake up often each morning. They are in separate rooms. 
And this would start with my daughter, Naomi. Your love is going on and it won't let go. <laughs> feel it. And then what would happen is this, is that from the other room, my son would be like this. Oh. And in the other room, Naomi would be like, hey, oh. And I'm like, guys, just shut up. <laughs> That's not the unfair bit. The unfair bit is this. Whenever they decided on a whim that they wanted to sleep in, they wanted to, to have a lion, muggins here would still have to wake up at 6.30 because they have destroyed my body clock. They have pushed me day after day, month after month, and I ha now I wake up without an alarm between the times of quarter to six and 6.30. Why? Because life is unfair and it's rarely in your favor. As jovial as that is, there are some serious examples of this though. Some serious examples of the fact that life is unfair and it's rarely in your favor. For me personally, it's, it's the fact that my mum died one day before lockdown started. And I didn't feel like I was able to give her the celebration that she was due. Life is unfair and it's, it's rarely in your favor. Well, the fact that me and Leanne, we had done everything correct, we had done everything right, we, we got married, we were serving the Lord, but we still lost our first son. Life is unfair and it is rarely in your favor. Or you get a news that someone in your family has cancer and is terminal. Life is unfair and it's rarely in your favor. You've been working at a job for 10, 15 years and then the manager walks in and says, unfortunately, we're going to have to let you go. Life is unfair. And it is rarely in our favor. And I think if we were honest this morning, humanity and many of us in this room we would much prefer to live in Eden. The place of no strife, the place of no pain, the place of no difficulty. It doesn't matter whether you're a Christian, a Muslim, a Buddhist, an atheist, we all as human beings want to live in a place of no pain. We just call it different names. We may call it Eden, Muslims may call it paradise, Buddhists may call it nirvana. We, we all have our, our names for it, but it illustrates a place of no pain and suffering. But for many of us, we live and reside in Gethsemane. The place of pain, the place of suffering, the place of hard, hardship. And what do we do when we have to live in the tension between these two truths, that the gospel is unfair and it's in my favor, but that life is unfair and it's rarely in our favor. Can we go a bit deeper this morning? Yeah. See, the, the book of Luke, he, uh, he starts and opens this scene by telling us that the disciples followed Jesus. And that word that he uses there for followed is the same word that previously in the Gospel of Luke he uses to describe when Jesus calls the disciples. When Jesus calls the disciples, what he is doing, he's saying, follow me, follow the way I live my life, 
Follow the way I process things. Follow my example. So in one of the most difficult seasons of Jesus' life, the writer of Luke is saying, follow the way Jesus processes pain and suffering. Think about how does he handle it? How does he navigate through some of the most difficult periods of his life? He utters these words, Jesus, not my will, but your will be done. These very famous words that we have heard over and over and over again. But for the next few moments that I have with you, I just want to unpack these words so that we can have some tools and tips to live in the tension between these two truths that the gospel is unfair and it's in my favor, but life is unfair and it's rarely in my favor. See, he utters these words, not my will, but your will be done. And it's, it's a demonstration that Jesus is facing the pain to come. He is facing the pain to come. There is an inevitability about the cross in Jesus' life. It's this kind of looming thing in the background that kind of guides and, and leads everything that Jesus does throughout the Gospels. So much so that in the Gospel of Mark, he, re he refrains from using the title Messiah because it conjures up too many connotations of a military attack. So he uses a different title, which is the Son of Man or the Suffering Servant. Because he wants to recalibrate the disciples' minds into seeing that salvation will come through suffering. And so he is so aware that the pain of the cross is to come. And as he utters these words, not my will, but your will be done, he is facing the pain. If you have lived long enough on this earth, there is an inevitability about pain and suffering. No matter how much money you earn, no matter how successful you are, no matter how good you think you are, no matter how much you put security things away and you've got emergency fund after emergency fund after emergency fund, it really doesn't matter. There is an inevitability about pain and suffering that will collide with your life. And you have to face it. You have to face it. Can't just bury your head in the sand. You, you have to face it head on. Because if you can face it head on, you can see the purpose in the pain. You can see the purpose in the pain. I read a book called The Cross and the Lynching Tree by a black theologian called James Cone. And he pens this story about a boy called Emmett Till. A 14-year-old black boy called Emmett Till in 1955 went to go visit his uncle. And as he was walking out of a grocery store, he said hello to a, a white woman. And she was, so dis she was so displeased and angered and disgusted by the audacity of this 14-year-old black boy to say hello to her that she fabricated a story that he assaulted her. As news went out, a mob showed up at Emmett Till's uncle's house, dragged him out of the house, beat him up, stripped him, and hung him from a tree. In a conversation with his mother, talking about the funeral arrangements, Emmett Till's mum said this, that she wanted the casket to be left open so that the nation and the world could see how her son was brutalized and dehumanized. That hopefully it would be a catalyst to the nation and the world. 
In 2003, in an interview in the Washington Post, Emmett Till's mum said this, I've not spent one moment hating, but my whole life has been advocating for racial justice so that the streets could be safe for other 14-year-old black boys and girls to walk down without there being fear of what happened to my son happening to them. Somehow, Emmett Till's mum saw the purpose in the pain. And as human beings, we have that ability to be able to see the purpose in the pain. I don't know what it is about how God has wired us, but somehow we are able to do that. Jesus saw the purpose in the pain of the nails that were going to go through his hands. He saw the purpose in the pain of the crown of thorns that they were going to put on his head. He saw the purpose in the pain of the sword that was going to be driven through his side. He saw the purpose in the pain of the betrayal for people that he had journeyed with for three years. The purpose of the pain was so that we could be in relationship with God. The purpose of the pain is so that we could be transformed. The purpose of the pain is so that those that were broken could be made whole. The purpose of the pain was so that the moanings and groanings that were coming from creation could be satisfied. The purpose of the pain is so that we could be Sons and daughters. He saw the purpose in the pain. And it's so incredibly important for us that as we live in the tension of these two truths, that the gospel is unfair, but it's in my favor. And that life is unfair and it's rarely in our favor. That we face the pain, but we also see the purpose in the pain. When you read this passage, it is sandwiched between two identical statements. Between two identical statements. And the first one is this, where Jesus says, pray so that you will not fall into temptation. And then the passage ends by saying, get up. And pray so that you will not fall into temptation. Because Jesus understands that there is a temptation. There is a temptation when we are in pain and suffering to to think that this is going to last forever. I'll tell you a quick story. A few years ago, I wasn't uh, feeling too well. And... um, and I really thought, like, this was it. No, seriously, guys, you guys are laughing at me, but I really, I really thought this was it. Like, I'm done for. Um, ambulance came to our house, and... <laughs> <laughs> ambulance came to... <laughs> Let me tell this story, Leanne. <laughs> the ambulance came to our house. I, mean, I rode in the ambulance all the way, to the hospital, because this was it, guys, okay? Straight face, bro. This was it, all right? I, I, was, I was done for. I was kicking the bucket, all right? And, um, and I, I don't know what was going to happen to me. And then we got to the hospital, and they did their tests, and the doctor said to me, Mr. Rudder, it just looks like you have tonsillitis. <laughs> now, guys, you, you don't know how it feels, because in the moment of pain, okay, I thought that was it. Okay, I'll tell you another story. When, um, when I got COVID for the first time, um, 
again, I thought this was it. Do you know what I mean? Um, and my COVID was not as bad as anybody else's COVID. Like, the most I had was a runny nose and a bit of a headache. And I remember one night saying to Leanne, don't leave the paracetamols in here because, like, I may take too many paracetamols because that's how much pain I can really take. Like, when I mean I can't take pain, I mean, like, I have screamed at taking injections. Now, I'm six foot three, okay? It's really difficult for the dentist to hold you down and persuade you with a lollipop at 35 years old. But that's how I respond to pain. But I know there are some more serious things that happen in life that sometimes we can think that when we are in the midst of pain, that it will never change. And the enemy knows, and he wants to try and trick you and tempt you into thinking that your life will never change, that your life will always be like this, that things will never be different, that your marriage will always be like this, that your kids will always be like this, that you'll always be in the same job, that you'll always be suffering, that you'll always be in poverty. The enemy wants to trick you and tempt you into thinking that Gethsemane lasts forever. And we have to be incredibly careful of the permanent decisions we make in temporary places of pain. We have to be so careful about the permanent decisions that we make when we are going through temporary seasons of pain. Because the enemy knows if I can trick you and tempt you into thinking that this lasts forever, then the likelihood of you giving up increases. Jesus says, pray, get up, so you will not fall into temptation. Because if he can convince you that, if the enemy can convince you that this lasts forever, then the likelihood of you giving up increases. So the enemy, he wants you to think that life being unfair and it's rarely in your favor, that that is the portion for the rest of your life. I'm going to finish here and ask the band to come back up because I want to read to you a different story. I want to read to you that actually there is a different narrative, that there is a different ending to your story. I want to to help you understand that I get it. Life is unfair and it is rarely in our favor. That is a truth that we have to admit and we have to face. But that is not the ending of your story because in Revelations chapter 22, Verse 1 to 4, it says this. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down to the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit and yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and the Lamb of God will be in the city and his servants will serve him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will, know, they will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun for the Lord God will give them light 
and they will reign with him forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever. Do you know what some biblical translations title this last chapter? Eden is restored. See, the enemy wants you to think that Gethsemane will last forever. But the truth is, is that it's actually Eden that lasts forever. The enemy wants you to think that life is unfair and it's rarely in your favor. That's what lasts forever. But my Bible tells me that it is actually the gospel, the gospel which is unfair, that is in my favor. That is the truth that lasts forever and ever and ever and ever. And I just want to encourage you, if that is the truth, then don't give up. Don't give up. Don't throw in the towel. Because Gethsemane, that's momentary. But Eden is for eternity. And I know we have to live in the tension of this truth that life is unfair and it's rarely in our favor. But what can drive our life, what we can get strength from, what we can gain courage from, what we can get perseverance from, endurance from, is that Gethsemane is momentary. And it's a place that we all have to live in and through. But Eden is for eternity. So don't fall for the temptation of giving up, of throwing in the towel, of thinking there's no point. Please don't fall into the temptation of turning your back on him. Maybe you walked in here this morning thinking, oh God, unless you say something to me, like I'm, I'm finished, I'm done. And I just need to encourage you, hold on to him. Because the reality is, he's got a hold of you. Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. God, we want to be honest and open and vulnerable with the truth that there's some of us that are ex experiencing life right now and it, it feels unfair. And it feels like it's not in our favor. Whatever we do, Lord, whatever we try, God, it seems to just backfire. Every time we try to, to move forward, Lord, it feels like we're taking 10 steps back. And we may be on the brink, God, of giving up. But Father, I pray that we will grab a hold of this truth. That yes, Gethsemane is momentary. Gethsemane is real. Gethsemane is a part of our lives. But as Ed said, it doesn't govern our life. It will not limit our life. It will not control our life. That God is a, it's a garden that we walk into. We reside in for a moment, but we understand where we are going. We understand where our, our destination is. And may God that give us the courage to keep walking. That Lord Jesus, even when the ground around us feels like it's shaking, we know God that you are our firm foundation. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for
for listening to this podcast from Influence Church. For any more information, visit our website, influencechurch.co.uk. Influence Church, empowering you to make a difference in your world for the kingdom of God.